Hey, how's it going, everyone? This is The Iron Dice, a podcast about how the past helps us understand the present. I'm your host, Dan Arrows, now back from a little hiatus after we wrapped up the Fight for the Republic series. But before we start our next series, I have a couple of things I'd like to talk about that somewhat dovetail nicely with our recent series. If you listen to the whole thing, you might have noticed that besides politicians, the media, or paramilitaries, there was another power column wielding a large amount of influence in society, and that is the unions. Early in the series, the support of the unions is crucial to securing which leftist faction ends up on top. Later, the unions will be instrumental in shutting down a coup by the military called the Cup Putsch in 1920. After the coup takes place, the Social Democrats, the Communists and the Unions call for a general strike which paralyzes the entire country. Even the gas, water and electricity supply in Berlin shuts down so that the insurrectionists have to use candles in the Reichstag. Communication is only possible via Korea and merely five days in, the coup collapses. Today, we can't really imagine unions or workers wielding this much coordinate power as unions have been in decline for a while. That said, right now, we're in a period that in the US has been described as hot labor fall following hot labor summer. And in regards to that, something pretty incredible has happened this week. One of the major strikes going on right now is the strike of the United Auto Workers Union. They represent 140,000 employees and are demanding a new contract that lets the workers benefit from the record profits the big three have been raking in. Big three are Ford, General Motors and Stellantis. So they are picketing right now and this week they had an important guest at the picket line. Alliance when I was a senator since 1973, but I tell you what, first time I've ever done it as president. Oh, sure. One thing is real simple. I'm going to be very brief. The fact of the matter is that you guys, the UAW, you saved the automobile industry back in 2008 and before. Made a lot of sacrifices. Gave up a lot. And the companies were in trouble. But now they're doing incredibly well. And guess what? You should be doing incredibly well, too. The simple problem Stick with it, because you deserve the significant raise you need and other benefits. Let's get it! Let's get back who we lost, okay? Yeah. Yeah. We say, yeah, it's about time for them to step up for us. Thank you. If you couldn't tell, this was President Joe Biden showing up in Detroit to support the union in their struggle for fair wages. Now, I have my issues with Joe Biden, but him being the first sitting U.S. president in history to visit a picket line and explicitly support the side of the unions is nothing to sneer at. And not just that, but if you listen carefully, you may have caught Biden saying it's time for them to step up for us. Us. Us, the workers, deserve more from them, the management. 
After Biden spoke, he stood and listened to what Sean Fain, the president of the United Auto Workers, had to say. And again, a president endorsing a speech like this with his presence is hard to believe. Sean Fain said this, among other things. This site, it holds a historic place in the history of our union and our country. This was part of the arsenal of democracy during World War II. It's where they built the V-24 Liberator Bomber. It's what helped win the war. So today, 80 years later, we find ourselves here again with the arsenal of democracy. It's a different kind of arsenal of democracy and it's a different kind of war we're fighting. Today, the enemy isn't some foreign country miles away. It's right here in our own area. It's corporate greed and the weapon we produce to fight that enemy, the true liberator, is the working class people. This aggressiveness that you can see in this president-endorsed speech really puts the big three on their back foot, I think. But this doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It's indicative of a societal change in the way we see unions and a change in the Democratic Party. Why Biden is doing this, whether he appreciates unions in his heart or if this is just him on the campaign trail, doesn't matter. It's that he's doing it that counts. And even if you put him in contrast to other Democratic presidents, this is meaningful. And I found a quote that demonstrates this nicely. NBC News published a piece titled Biden makes history by joining striking auto workers on the picket line. And in this piece, they talked to, among others, a former Obama official. Uh, here's one paragraph. For him to be going on a picket line is outrageous, Stephen Ratner, who headed President Barack Obama's auto industry task force, said in an interview. There is no precedent for it. The tradition of the president is to stay neutral in these things. I get the politics. The progressives all said, we don't want a mediator, we want an advocate. And he bowed to the progressives. And now he's going out there to put his thumb on the scale. And it's wrong. So Ratner is clearly not a fan of this move. And considering the people around him, it makes sense that Obama never visited a picket line, even though he said he would on the campaign trail. Some of you might remember that in 2010, so during Obama's first term, the auto industry was in a crisis. And the guy cited above, Ratner, actually wrote a book about this time and recounts a conversation with Rahm Emanuel, who was Obama's chief of staff. Quoting from the same piece, illustrating the competing considerations at play, one official mentioned polling that showed that people disliked government bailouts. Another mentioned the tens of thousands of auto workers' jobs that would be lost if the companies collapsed. Fuck the UAW, Emmanuel said, according to Ratner's account. This is Obama's chief of staff, who is now ambassador to Japan, by the way. I like that they brought this up in this piece because it shows the sea change the United States and much of the Western world is undergoing right now. Because Biden appearing on the picket line comes at the heels of broad labor action throughout the US and Europe. Even in countries where industrial action isn't usually as common as in, let's say, France, workers and unions are more and more flexing their muscles. The UK, for example, has lost more working days to strikes in 2022 than in any year since 1989. 2023, until now, isn't looking much different, 
especially in the public sector. If you're in Germany, you are well aware of the labor action in the railway sector. Europe's largest union, IG Metall, has just come out with the demand of a wage increase, coupled with the introduction of the four-day work week in the steel industry. In the US, we've seen hundreds of thousands of workers going on strike throughout the summer, including some 65,000 Hollywood actors and writers ticking up picket signs. And of course, the above-mentioned UAW strike, about which the Republican frontrunner of 2024, Donald Trump, was asked as well. In an interview with Meet the Press, he was asked directly, whose side are you on? Uh, I had this quote written down in the first draft of the script, uh, but it might be better if I just play the clip for you. My question for you, Mr. President, whose side are you on in this? Uh, I'm on the side of uh, making our country great. Uh, the auto workers uh, are not going to have any jobs when you come right down to it, because if you take a look at what they're doing with electric cars, electric cars are going to be made in China. The auto workers are not going to have any. I'll tell you what. The auto workers are being sold down the river by their leadership, and their leadership should endorse Trump. The reason is, you got to have choice. Like in school, I want school choice. I also want choice for cars. If somebody wants gasoline, if somebody wants all electric, they can do whatever they want. But they're destroying the consumer, and they're destroying the auto workers. The auto workers will not have any jobs, Kristen, because the, all of these cars are going to be made in China. The electric cars automatically are going to be made in China. Not sure what to make of his answer here, be that as it may, that the Democratic president supports the union and the Republican frontrunner at least isn't vocally fully on the side of the companies, although he is in practice, is another encouraging sign of the vibe shift happening right now. Not to mention the ongoing efforts to unionize Starbucks and Amazon. Things are in motion. One quote I have for you here comes from the president of the German Institute for Economic Research, who speaks of a watershed moment in that, quote, The days of an employer's market, in which employers could more or less dictate wages and working conditions, seem to be over. In my mind, this is really the correct lens to view this development. That it is not an entirely new state for the labor market to be in, but that it's the first time since pretty much the financial crisis of 2008 that it's slightly tipping towards a balance of bargaining power between employers and employees. Now, the reason why this is happening in so many countries whose labor movement and union density is very different is that they all underwent the shock that was the COVID pandemic. And that set of forces that now have the potential to usher in a comeback of the labor movement and unions. It's clear that not everyone would like to see that happen. These movements have powerful enemies, and I think you can see that effort clearly looking at some of the financial policy of the Federal Reserve and European Central Bank, where the unsaid aim in raising interest rates is not merely combating inflation, but inducing a recession that tips the labor market in favor of employers. Since a lot of powerful people feel like employees are getting too much leverage right now. And you don't have to take my word for it. Here is Tim Gurner, who is a real estate developer and the CEO of the Gurner Group. I think the problem that we've had is that we've, you know, we, we have 
people decided they didn't really want to work so much anymore through COVID, and that has had a massive issue on productivity. You know, tradies have definitely pulled back on productivity. You know, they, they have been paid a, paid a lot to do not too much in the last few years, and we need to see that change. We need to see unemployment rise. Unemployment has to jump 40 50% in my view. We need to see pain in the economy. We need to remind people that they work for the employer, not the other way around. I mean, there is a, there's been a systematic change where employees feel the employer is extremely lucky to have them, um, as opposed to the other way around. So it's a dynamic that has to change. We've got to kill that attitude, and that has to come through hurting the economy, which is what the whole global, you know, the, the world is trying to do. The governments around the world are trying to increase unemployment to get that to some sort of normality. And we're seeing it. I think every employer now is seeing it. I mean, there is definitely massive layoffs going off. People might not be talking about it, but people are definitely laying people off and we're starting to see less arrogance in the employment market. And that has to continue because that will cascade across the cost balance. When I heard this for the first time, I immediately thought, where have I heard the name Tim Gurner before? Uh, until someone pointed out that this is the guy who created the Millennials spent all their money on avocado toast meme. Uh, this was released in The Guardian in 2017. Headline, Millionaire tells millennials, if you want a house, stop buying avocado toast. Australian real estate mogul Tim Gurner advised young people to solve their housing woes by putting their $22 a pop toast toward a deposit instead. Uh, <laughs> Clearly a man who is very much in touch uh, with what is happening, but I'm still grateful that he laid out what millionaire business moguls think about the current economy. Uh, anyway, before we get further into current labor conflicts, I think it's worth touching upon why we are talking about a comeback here. What did unions or the labor movement have to come back from? As I said, this varies heavily from country to country, so... Not to bloat the topic too much, we're mostly going to focus on Germany and the United States, countries in which the role of unions in the labor market is quite different, while still being faced with similar challenges. And by looking at that, you can really see that we are often more connected than we realize. Now, what I was somewhat shocked to learn is that the country that had the most violent labor unrests in the industrialized world is not France, not Germany, but the US. And I don't want to go back too far because while I think it's important to learn about minor strikes being violently broken up in the early 1900s, for instance, the takeaway for us is limited. Generally, that is not how it works anymore. But looking back to the creation of unions, it's important to remember why they were necessary in the first place. Namely that generally, the leverage that an employer has over an individual worker is much greater than the other way around. Oh, you don't like the working conditions? Go work somewhere else. That's nothing to a business owner. But if like half the workforce says they have a problem with the working conditions, the balance of power shifts, not necessarily in favor of the workforce, but towards a point of equilibrium. Since a factory owner usually can continue with a significant chunk of the workforce refusing to work, he is incentivized to make concessions to his workforce. 
that's just a very basic rundown of why unions are necessary for a semi-healthy relationship between employer and employee. In the United States, unions were at the height of their power in the mid-40s. That's when the share of unionized U.S. workers was at its highest ever. World War II had driven more and more people into manufacturing and factories, workplaces that tended to be highly unionized. But World War II did something else, and this might feel familiar. It caused rapid inflation. In 1945, the United States had an inflation of 8%. 1946, inflation hit 14%. So a lot of people saw their buying power decrease as companies raised prices. During the war, unions had largely refrained from striking as to not hinder the war effort, but now that the war was coming to an end, they started throwing their weight around a little bit. In January 1946 alone, you have 93,000 meat packers going on strike, 174,000 electric workers, and 750,000 steelworkers, all in one month. A couple of months later, you have over 300,000 coal miners going on strike, 250,000 railroad workers. It's all getting a little uncomfortable for business owners in 1946. And here's something happens that we will come back to time and time again. You just listened to Tim Gurner describing that governments around the world more and more intervene in the labor market on the side of business owners. And so often when the labor market tilts towards the worker side, the liberal commitment to market forces delivering the best outcome completely vanishes. That's when intervention takes place. And that is precisely what happens in the United States in 1946. Business owners get together and instead of working with their employees to resolve these issues, groups like the National Association of Manufacturers pour money into lobbying in an effort to make Congress intervene, spreading the idea that unions have become too powerful and that the government had to crack down on them to avoid disruption of industries and economic instability. At that time, the Republicans had just come out on top in the 1946 election, and they are more than willing to put the screws on the labor movement. They do so with the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947. Now, what this act does is, first of all, it outright bans certain types of strikes. Solidarity strikes, wildcat strikes, secondary boycotts, and political strikes. All banned by this bill. It restricts donations from unions to political campaigns while leaving the right of companies to do the same untouched. It also required union officers to sign an affidavit with the government stating that the officer is not part of any communist or affiliated organizations and gave the federal government the right to perform injunctions if a strike imperiled national health or safety. Uh, we even saw a recent example of something like that when 100,000 railroad workers threatened to strike, demanding paid sick leave in their new contracts, and the Biden administration intervened, making the looming strike illegal. 
Now, around 1947, the conditions for unions in the U.S. and in Germany are not really comparable. While U.S. Congress passes the Taft-Hartley Act, Germany is divided up into different occupied zones. And while Germany did have a long union tradition, they had been completely destroyed under the Nazis. So the challenge for them was to re-establish themselves first before improving conditions. And when I say Germany, I mean West Germany, considering that independent unions weren't really a thing in the GDR, at least after the uprising in June 1953. In West Germany, unions get right to reorganizing themselves, and in 1949, a bunch of unions from the occupied zones get together and form the German Trade Union Confederation, or DGB, which exists to this day and is an umbrella organization coordinating demands and activities within the German trade union movement. A key difference between the US and Germany when it comes to union density is that Germany had to reboot its manufacturing sector, which traditionally has a high union density, while the United States is impacted earlier and harder by globalization. Over the years, the manufacturing sector moves overseas. It moves to China, Bangladesh, Vietnam, etc. In parts because the US gets more competition from countries like Germany and Japan. So the US economy moves away from manufacturing and becomes more of a service economy. And where things really get interesting is in the 1970s. Until that point in the United States, there had been a somewhat uneasy balance between labor and management, similar to European countries. But all that was about to change. At the beginning of the 70s, employers look around and they see a couple of things that make them very nervous. Firstly, the competition as other parts of the world build up their economies. The 1970s is also the period where the financialization of the economy kicks into gear, moving economic power away from traditional sectors to banks. And thirdly, the rate of profit for private businesses is just nosediving since the mid-60s. And this new economic paradigm leads employers to go on the offensive against unions and regulations. They increase their lobbying efforts against environmental and consumer protections, while at the same time reducing labor costs by switching to temporary workers and generally reducing the amount of contracts that are covered by union agreements. Now, at the same time, you have a massive amount of workers going on strike. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics in the year 1970 alone, there were 5,716 strikes involving 3 million workers. I can't get into every single one, but during what would later be called the long 70s, the U.S. saw a number of not just strikes, but violent labor disputes throughout the entire country. Here's how Kel Wilson sums this up for a piece in The Jacobin. In the auto plants, workers struck to humanize working conditions. Coal miners fought for an end to chronic poverty in Appalachia. Black workers demanded access, integration and equality. Truckers called for union democracy. UPS workers rebelled against being treated like machines. Millions of workers clearly wanted something better in life. Black workers, Latinos, women and young workers brought their movements into the workplace. 
Now, why am I bringing all this up? It's because, while of course there are larger economic trends affecting union density and the labor movement, you can point to key moments whose effects stick with us to this day. And this is what I thought of when I saw Biden at the picket line. Does this have the potential to be one of these key moments? The last key moment for the United States of this kind, in a negative way, happened in 1981, at a moment at which the labor movement's confidence is wavering. Despite all the efforts throughout the 70s, things like the 1973 oil crisis that leads into the stagflation crisis greatly increase unemployment, weakening unions. Again, looking at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the number of major work stoppages fell by 20% in 1980, which is the same year that Ronald Reagan becomes president of the United States on a platform of deregulation of industry and cutting back on workers' rights. So in this moment, U.S. employees are in a very vulnerable position. And this is the moment in which the most maybe consequential labor dispute in American history takes place. On August 3rd, 1981, roughly 13,000 members of the professional air traffic controllers go on strike, demanding a wage increase, upgraded work equipment, and maybe, most importantly, reduced working hours. I say most importantly because the job of an air traffic controller is highly stressful, considering the stakes of making a mistake on the job. In fact, the spark for the founding of this union, that is called PETCO, came out of the 1960 New York mid-air collision of two airplanes that killed over 130 people, with one of the airplanes nearly falling onto an elementary school. So a big reason why PETCO is demanding reduced working hours is for safety reasons. Being overworked as an air traffic controller is much more dangerous than being overworked on other jobs. Petco president Bob Poley said at the time that nearly 90% of the workforce didn't stay in their jobs long enough to retire due to the enormous stress that comes with being an air traffic controller. Now, the members of Petco are federal employees, which means one, their negotiating partner is the government, and secondly, they are not allowed to strike. Any strike would be illegal. But they don't see any other way after negotiations break down. As an immediate result of the strike, roughly 7,000 flights are cancelled and almost the entire U.S. air travel grinds to a halt. Every news station is covering the strike, filming picket lines and frustrated customers. On the same day the strike is called, President Reagan addresses the nation and gives the striking workers the following ultimatum. One mistake that the PATCO union made here is that they believed that Reagan would either be on their side or more likely stay neutral since he had made some comments in support of the air traffic controllers before he became president. That president, as we know now, turned out to be a pro-business zealot who was very much in favor of de facto destroying unions. Their second mistake was that they threw down the gauntlet when public opinion was not necessarily on their side for the most part. In other words, they had overplayed their hand. After Reagan's ultimatum, only 1,300 controllers returned to work, and on August 5th, the president fired over 11,000 workers and banned them from federal employment 
for life. It was also the end of PADCO, a union that had existed for more than a decade. Here is how historian Joseph A. McCartan describes the immediate fallout in his book Collision Course, Ronald Reagan, the air traffic controllers, and the strike that changed America. A slight content warning for this. Quote, Financial stress and post-strike recriminations divided many PADCO families. Separations and divorces mounted. The first suicide came 10 days into the strike when an Indianapolis striker was found dead in his garage with his car running. By the end of November, there were three more suicides, including one of a PADCO spouse who hanged herself in her kitchen with unpaid bills strewn on a nearby table. As tragic as these personal stories of PADCO members are, the destruction of their union by the federal government would have much broader implications. Obviously, it was a disaster for public sector unions, but apart from the policy the Reagan administration would put into practice, the destruction of PADCO was an important signal to the private sector. While the 70s had proven tough for the labor movement, now there was blood in the water. Riding Reagan's coattails, businesses engaged in much more aggressive practices of union busting. This attitude of getting tough with unions also discouraged workers across the board to choose union representation because they had just seen what happens when you challenge management in that way. And that, coupled with things like automation and other macroeconomic trends, leads us to today. I thought a lot about if it is possible to find such a key moment for the German labor movement, something similar to the president declaring open season on unions. Obviously, something like that did happen in 1933, uh, but I was looking for something more graspable. The thing is, when looking for something as significant and easy to point to, like the destruction of PADCO in 1981, Germany doesn't really have an equivalent. It's more of a slow decline, although union busting exists in Germany as well. A famous example happened in the 1970s when a rival of the DGB popped up calling itself the Association of Independent Employees that sought to surplant the existing umbrella structure of the big unions. Turns out this organization, or at least the people involved in the organization, uh, were heavily paid by the German tech conglomerate Siemens uh, that I used to work for, funnily enough. Uh, it's estimated that Siemens paid the chairman of the AUB roughly 54 million euros in total. And that is broadly how it works in Germany. Instead of using the crowbar, union busting in Germany starts with a handshake, trying to hollow out these structures like uh, work councils, for instance. Apart from the trade unions, lots of companies in Germany have a shop floor organization that represents the workers on a local level. So one way to supplant that is for employers to attempt to influence workers on who they should vote for to represent them, putting up candidates that are closer to management, that sort of stuff. An example of this arguably took place at the Tesla plant in Brandenburg. Uh, it seems like Elon Musk brought his phobia of unions with him when he opened this factory over here. Last year, the newspaper Tuts reported that union members at the factory had been threatened with layoffs by management because they had put up stickers reading, Our health is more important than Elon's next billion. Keep that in mind. 
And over time, since the factory opened in 2020, you would sometimes read stories about employees from that plant raising concerns about safety or too many working hours. Now, this plant does have a work council, so the workers have someone they can go to for these issues. Here is the thing, though. The election for the representatives on this council took place before the majority of the workforce for this plant was hired. So the people on the council were voted in not as much by people on the shop floor, but by middle management. That's just one example of how workers' rights for representation are undermined in Germany. Before we move on from Tesla, though, keeping that story that I just mentioned in mind, here's what came out yesterday. Multiple German news outlets report that the Tesla factory in Brandenburg has an unusually high amount of work-related injuries. In Germany, companies have to report incidents if they lead to a worker being out of work for more than three days. Between June and November of 2022, this one plant had 190 of those incidents that they had to report. And this isn't even counting minor incidents or those that aren't reported by an employee. One worker had their foot break through the top of an oven, uh, putting his foot into boiling aluminum. Others have been burned by hydrochloric acid. In the first year after the plant was opened, it required an ambulance or a helicopter 247 times. It's, It's wild over there. The next election for a new work council is in 2024, and ideally hope they can elect someone more representative of the majority of the workers there and hopefully improve the safety conditions. Because at this rate, it's only a matter of time until someone dies. Taking a step back to look at the larger picture, there are a couple of things German unions struggled with in the last few decades. While in 1991, the unions that were part of the DGB had 11.8 million members, in 2020, it was 5.9 million. And members are everything for a union. Not just because they pay union fees, but because it's their numbers that give a union the strength to make demands from management. Without the threat of being able to impact production or shut down schools or daycare centers, they lack leverage. And those numbers have been going down for 30 years, although, although this isn't necessarily just the fault of union management, because if sectors that are traditionally heavily unionized start shrinking, so do their members. It's a solemn fact of the labor market that Germany is lacking trainees. And where do trainees usually go? Into manufacturing. But now more and more people go to university and they end up in smaller, more atomized companies that often don't even have a work council. In other words, Germany's economy shifting away from industrial capitalism is a big challenge for them. Because what creates class consciousness, meaning that someone sees themselves as a worker, is proximity to other workers facing similar issues. And How are you supposed to have a collective struggle if everyone is working from home? That's the exact opposite of the conditions that gave unions their strength back in the day. Couple that with the so-called liberalization of the labor market that Germany has undergone since the 90s, heavily increasing the number of temporary workers and subcontracts. 
it becomes difficult. And this brings us back to the current moment, talking about shared experiences. Workers in Germany and the US have seen inflation and rising prices drive down their buying power significantly. On top of that, you have greedflation, meaning companies raising their prices because they think they can get away with it and thereby driving up inflation even further. This comes at the heels of the pandemic, during which there was a lot of talk about the shared sacrifices we would have to make. But it turned out that only really meant sacrifices for working class people. For the richest of the rich, the pandemic has been nothing but good news. While workers face reduced working hours and layoffs, they saw their fortunes skyrocket, only increasing the growing gap between workers and rich people. And that is not just an issue of fairness, but of democracy as a whole. Germany sees an unprecedented rise in voters willing to give their vote to the AFD, which is undoubtedly fueled by the fear of sinking living standards. This is where unions prove to really be the arsenal of democracy, as Sean Fein said. They improve labor conditions, they help workers demand a fairer share of the corporate profits they create so that they can have a decent living and don't have to worry about slipping into poverty. And that fight is being fought in the US and in Germany alike. The example from over here that I cited above was the IG Metal, and you hear them echo the demands made by the UAW. 32-hour workweek coupled with a pay rise, something the steel industry can afford and that is simply fair to their employees. Full disclosure here, this episode of The Iron Dice has been made in collaboration with IG Metal and I've worked with them for a while and I'm super proud of the work they are doing right now. Now, after going over the history of the sacrifices workers have made in recent years, recent decades, the pandemic, the liberalization of the labor markets, eroding buying power and social services, hot labor fall can be a long overdue course correction that tips the scale a little bit further towards a fair outcome for workers in Germany, the US and around the world. Oftentimes when leftists talk about electoralism, the point is made that apart from voting every four years, organizing is an effective way to help out working people. Well, this is what that is. Organizing workers to collectively bargain. Helping workers find representation. I know a large section of our listeners are from Germany and if you want to get in on that, and you should, there are a couple of links in the description to help you do that. I tend to be a bit of a doomer when it comes to talking politics on this podcast, I know. Uh, but what is happening right now really does give me some optimism for the future. Even more so because my wife is currently pregnant with our first child and I'm thankful for anything making me more hopeful for the future, even if it's just a president visiting a picket line. And with that, solidarity forever, and I'll see you soon. shall run there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one but the union makes us strong